It's show 144 of the Rim Pro Report. Today, Chris Muller and the latest industry news. The show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. Do you know that O'Neill generates more than 15 million barcode labels a year? Generating barcode labels for most RIM companies can only be described as a nuisance at best. Maintaining printers, labor costs, ordering and inventorying labels, dealing with software and keeping track of serial number sequences is a time-consuming and costly distraction. So O'Neill does it for clients to the tune of 15 million of them per year. And if you're interested in that, you can learn more about them and this service at O'Neillsoft.com. I was reminded that this particular show, our 144th episode, is gross. It's gross. Get it? 144? Gross. Boom, 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 boom. Welcome to the RIM Pro Report. The one and only weekly broadcast for the RIM support services industry. Bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Yep, it's me, and it is our 144th show. And no, despite being a gross in terms of the sheer quantity of shows, we're happy to report everything else is pretty peachy. No grossness at all. How are things in your world? What's going on with you? Are you having a good prep for summer? I don't know if you're taking vacation, what you're doing, but I hope as you get ready for the summer, especially if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, I know many of our friends who listen to the show in the Southern Hemisphere are kind of going into the opposite time of the year. So uh, for those of you listening, preparing for summer, I hope it's going well. For those of you listening who are preparing for winter, um, my thoughts are with you. Hey, as a way of advanced notification, the RIM Pro Report will officially be on holidays for the month of July. We have another show next week to complete the month of June, and then we're going to be quiet for a month. We want to take a break and give you a break and then come roaring back into the fall of the year with a great new round of shows and interview guests. Now, talking about guests, I'm looking forward to my conversation today with Chris Muller of Muller Media Conversions. Chris has caught my attention a number of times over the years as he is doing something pretty cool within the reaches of our industry that has always intrigued me. He's uh, often called Raider of the Lost Archives, uh, and Chris and his company do really interesting media conversion work. And it seems to me like he is as busy as ever figuring out how to retrieve old data off of old media. Luckily, I've been able to get him to join us on the show today and talk about what he's doing and what he's seen over the years. But before I get him on the line, let's get caught up on the latest industry news. Nade just announced that a number of international companies have renewed their Nade certifications along with a couple of new companies to gain the certification. The cool part about this is that the Nade standard continues to gain much wider traction across the world. So congratulations to Green Team Shredsake in Puraka, Australia. I'm not sure I said that right, but uh, it's somewhere over there. Puraka. Uh, DeGraff Security in Amsterdam. Rieswold Heesh in uh, Heesh also in the Netherlands, in Katana, in Geneva on recertification, and to Confidence PL in Melbourne, Australia, and Glaze Wing in the UK on their first-time certifications. So congrats to all of those. An interesting study was just conducted by Ipsos Reid and funded by Shreddit. Some of the interesting statistics to emerge from the study about the potential impact of data breaches on small business. In a study of over 1,000 small business owners, 69%, 69% 
percent are unaware or don't even believe lost or stolen stolen data would result in financial impact or harm to their business credibility yikes on top of that 40 percent of them have no protocols in place for actually securing their data which is uh in in, in a crazy way, an actual increase from last year of 5%. Now, more than a third of the people uh, in the survey claim to never actually train staff on information security procedures. And there's a few more things that came out of the study. So lest you think there is a completely vended market, this is some small bit of evidence that suggests there is still much education to do and companies who still out there need to be shredding, securing, and properly protecting their records and information assets. You've got work to do. Well, that's all the news I have in my uh, news bin this morning. If you have anything to report, let me know so I can share it. Alrighty then, I'm going to get Chris Muller on the line. Hang tight while I do. Chris Muller is the founder, owner, and CEO of Muller Media Conversions. I'm delighted to have Chris on the show today. Chris, are you there? Yes, I am, Tom. Happy to be here. Oh, welcome to the Rim Pro Report. It's so good to have you here. I, I have sort of observed you for a number of years, and uh, I'm intrigued by what you're doing. So tell me about Muller Media Conversions. In a brief way, tell me what your company does. Okay, well, as you know, Tom, digital information gets stored in a whole bunch of different ways, yeah. and advances in software and hardware and everything uh, driven by our great free enterprise system, they ensure a plethora of different types of media and file formats at any moment in time, and then if you stretch that out over a long period of time, you've got you know, all kinds of information uh, that... Um, so making the information from Mr. X's system useful to Mr. Y mm-hmm. has always been a challenge. And that, that's basically it. We, we're taking uh, data from one type of system and trying to either, either just move it or in some cases completely translate the content so it's more useful in another environment. And a lot of what we're doing lately is, is dealing with older data, which is a particular challenge because it's often on media that's at risk of decay or permanent loss, and it's in a file format that might not be documented and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's predominantly it's digital um, media or it's digital data that you're you're doing that with. Yes, we deal strictly with born digital material. Got it. Okay, very cool. So tell me about how this company got started. What got you started and why did you get started? Tell me a little bit about the Genesis story of it. Well, okay, way back in the day, yeah. in 1978, I was in charge of software development for a financial printing company. Huh. And in those days, before PCs, if you wanted to create print documents that look good. You had to have very special software on a mini computer or a mainframe and expensive typesetting equipment. Nowadays, all you need is a copy of Microsoft Word. (laughs) Right. But in those days, it was a real specialty. And our clients were mostly law firms and banks and other Wall Street types. All of a sudden, there was this big flood of word processing equipment, even before the PCs, you know, and they called it the alphabet soup where the CPT, NBI, AES, Videc, Xerox, all of these different types of systems became available. 
companies, mostly larger companies, so they could prepare documents on their own electronically. Hmm. And, of course, Wang was just beginning to dominate that field also. And most of the data was on floppy disks, good old floppy disks. Right. None of them were compatible with each other. <laughs> the size of the disk, the density, the file format, everything was different. It was a mess. But the law firms were tired of paying fancy printing companies like the one I work for to continually revise their financial statements and so forth. So they wanted to do as much of that work in-house as they could. So they bought these systems, these Videx and NBIs and so forth. Yeah. And they wanted to do most of the editing in-house and then pass those floppies or tapes, maybe a computer tape, along to the printer and let them do the final phases of the job from that. Gee, what do we call that? Well, it's media conversion. Right. And that's how I got focused on it, uh, through my work with a financial printing company. And uh, a gentleman who worked for that company also would also helped to, to found my company initially, and eventually I bought him out. But So we started out focusing on Wall Street community, and in particular on their relationship, pre- preparing documents for financial printers. And media conversion became a key part of that and eventually became the main part of our business, was just taking information from one form, translating it to another, so it's useful on a different system. Hmm. So this friend of yours, or this colleague of yours, when when you decided to found this company, uh, was it that sense that there's so much opportunity here that we can't not do this, or, or, or what were you thinking at the time in terms of that entrepreneurial spark? That was pretty much it. It was an opportunity. Most of the printing industry in New York was uh, were union shops, right. and the the regulations for working and the, just the cost of operation were were ridiculously high. So we decided to start a company where we could perhaps take the uh, the documents from the banks and law firms, and then also do editing on our own system. I actually sat down over the summer when I started the company and wrote a a um, an editing system of our own that ran on a little PDP-11 mini-computer. And so it was partly conversion, partly incorporating last-minute editing, and then forwarding to yet another system, which was owned by the financial printers. Wow. Yeah, so that was the initial model. Yeah. Sounds to me like, uh, and, and this is this is not said lightly. This is said with a great deal of of respect. You're a little bit of a geek. <laughs> yeah, at this point, an elder geek. Okay, an elder geek. Well, that that's that's a cool thing. But you were writing software. It sounds before you know a lot of people were even thinking software existed. Yeah, yeah. I first started at Grumman back in the 1960s, and they there was no such thing of programmers at those days. Everybody was trained by the company that you went to work for. Right. There were no schools that taught that. Huh. Oh well. <laughs> so so on LinkedIn and and I find this interesting you refer to yourself as Raider of the Lost Archives. Tell me a little bit about the connection to that and um that, that indicates to me a little bit more geekiness which is kind of cool but um how how has that little that little uh title that you seem to have used over the years uh been beneficial to you or or how did you come up with it? Well, you know, for as you might have told been able to tell I love puns and things like that and yeah. I and I love that movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh yeah. And 
1992, we began some work with the National Archives, who over the years was really our very best uh, customer. And, uh, and I love the movie, and uh, I just couldn't resist using that term, Raiding the Lost Archives. That's fabulous. And we really like working with archivists, and, and uh, some of the items that people in the archival business uh, need to preserve are really pretty cool. And when we find out about there being some special meaning to stuff that we're working on, that, that makes it extra fun. Yeah. So how do you how do you do this? So do you have a large assortment of old technology sitting around your office? So, I mean, you've got these old tapes and how, how does it that you can take old stuff like a floppy and turn it into something meaningful today? Give, give me a little sense of, you know, what what are you doing and and in terms of how you're how you how you deal with this old media or this old data on old media and translate it. I know you said you've been able to program stuff, but it seems to me like a lot of that stuff shows up on reels or in other formats. T- tell me a little bit about what it looks like. Yeah, um, essentially we, do, we don't keep a lot of old systems around, but what we do is uh, keep the, the tape drives and the disk drives and so forth. So we got quite a collection of, of, um, of tape drives running all the way from old, uh, uh, old nine-track reels to four-millimeter tapes to, through, um, up all the way through LTO hmm. tapes, which is kind of the latest generation. Right. And, uh, and uh, very popular were IBM mainframe tapes, called the IBM 3480 and 3590 and so forth, and we have drives. But these are all connected to PCs. Okay. Initially, we used a mini computer, but within three or four years, we uh, maybe five years after founding the company, PCs began to dominate, and they became powerful enough, and we switched all of our applications over to PCs. So now, um, if you send me a tape from an old Wang computer, uh, I'll read that tape um, on a PC, okay. PC software. But we do require lots of old... Uh, peripheral devices, but not the systems themselves. Right, okay. So without getting into too much, um, you know, sort of technical jargon, uh, tell me what the process looks like, you know, with a simple case study, for example. So if I find a bunch of old nine-track reels in my office basement and I know there is some really valuable data on those uh, and I bring them to you, what is kind of the process that you go through with that? Just, Just in terms of... You know, they. You know, if we're drawing it out on a mind map or a, on a flowchart, what what kind of process do you go through to recover that information? To, um, you know, where does it go from there? Give, give me a, an overview of that process. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting you mentioned nine tracks because it's it's amazing how many of them are still out there. Hmm. Um, we're we're getting them in all the time from universities and state archives and. People like that, even even uh, uh, litigation driven. Uh, we had a case a couple of years ago with an insurance company that had it was something like 200 reels of old data that became um, subject to litigation. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, so in any case, my track reels, they're still hanging around, but nowadays we're getting most of them from retiring professors. Or uh, you know universities that had collections and uh, stuff like that, but here's the the step we might go through. Okay. Um, 
Right now, um, I'm doing a couple of batches. I'm right now from a state archivist and two universities. Uh, the first step is physical inspection and possible cleaning. Those old tapes can degrade in a couple of different ways, depending on the brand and the chemistry that they use to create the tapes. Mm. And non-track tapes, even even hanging for too long in one position, can stretch a tape in one direction. Oh, okay. Uh, so they're 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 more sensitive than a lot of the newer uh, media, but uh, they can compose in a dry sort of way, which generally is okay. You can put them through a cleaner and just clean the tapes off and then put them on your tape drive. Or they can decompose in a sticky sort of way. And those are really tough to deal with because they'll seize up. uh, That sticky material will eventually seize up on the heads of your drive and may even uh, cause a bad spot on the tape with an unrecoverable error. And the only way to deal with really sticky tapes is to bake them in an oven. <laughs> but I won't get into that. That's a pain in the neck, and it takes a long time. But we have done that for some of our is this a, Is this a special oven, or is this just the kitchen oven? Uh, you actually, if you had a kitchen oven that was, that was finely controlled enough, uh, you could probably do it. And wow. I, I've heard of people that have used kitchen ovens for, for old audio tapes. For That's example. hilarious. Um, but, yeah, we used a scientific oven right. and so forth. So you've inspected it and cleaned it. Right. You inspect it and cleaned it. Then, then what we do is we just load the tape and we do a quick, a quick dump. We physically look at the first couple of blocks of data on the tape just to make sure we know what kind of tape it is. Did it come from a mainframe? Did it come from an old mini computer like a Vax or something? Just to get a little bit of a handle on, on the tape and whether it has an, a unique identifier recorded on it. And in that case, we'll use that identifier for helping to catalog things later. Um, And then the very next thing is we take a virtual tape copy of the whole thing. With these older tapes, you don't want to be going through them many different times to do one thing with one file and another thing with another file. Right. Uh, You don't want to be messing around with the tapes so much. So you take a virtual tape copy of it. Right. And okay. put it essentially put it into a PC file that emulates a tape. So that file is organized just the same way the tape is so that you know how big each block of data is, where the file marks were, all that sort of thing. So that's the best way to do it. Just zip it into a what we call a tape image file. And then everything else you can do from that file. You don't have to mess with the physical tape anymore. Right. Okay. And... Um, and then if a, if a tape comes from a mainframe or from a Wang or from a Data General or Honeywell or whatever, we have separate programs that we've written over the years that can convert many of those file formats. You know, And they, they could be regular data files. They could be word processing files, you know, a pretty wide variety of things. Uh, could be We deal a lot with statistical files for universities like the SPSS format. They that could be that. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. And then once we've taken the data and converted it to the form that the client uh, asks for, sometimes the client really don't know what they want to do with it, and so we wind up having an interaction with them, um, determining what's the best thing to do with this particular data, what, how they want to convert it. Because they're they're looking for uh, obviously in pulling this archival um, data off of these old 
these old um, media sources, they're looking for it to be readable in a format they, they can currently access. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. So you usually they'll want it in ASCII, you know, a plain a plain text file. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And that way they can import it into a database or whatever from there. And uh, so that's you know, and we enjoy doing that. Yeah. We, we enjoy interacting with the client and you know helping them to make sure that they're going to get the, the best benefit from that data. Well, I, I was looking on your website, and, you know, we, we've just kind of gone through a simple case study, but in looking at your website, it looks like you've had some pretty cool encounters or some pretty cool um, projects that you've been involved in. Tell me about a couple of your favorite projects. Well, there's one, you know, uh, we, we, love, uh, we love puns and stuff, so uh, we like to tell people that www doesn't mean the web. It means Watergate, Whitewater, and WorldCom. Wow. We actually work involved in all three of those cases. Of course, these days, many people may not remember those names so much. Uh, but in any case, in, in, in the first case with Watergate, there was a, uh, a tape at the National Archives, and perhaps later we could discuss our relationship with them a little bit. Uh, but they had this tape sitting there for 25 years, and it contained a database describing the president's appointment calendar with various notes associated with the meetings he had. And nobody had ever kind of figured out the structure of that database. Hmm. And so I got a, a little uh, personal job with them to, to kind of crack that format and turn it into something that researchers could just call up and search through conveniently. Wow. And that was kind of fun. It turned out that it was really very similar to the database uh, to a very early database program from the 1970s that they used to contain a lot of Vietnam War records. And I had seen some of those tapes before and recognized the pattern. And uh, so, uh, so that was kind of fun. So that was, um, water, that was Watergate. That was Watergate. White yeah. water. And then with white, with white water, it actually had, uh, well, I'll go back to maybe a little other connection with white water, but... Um, there's a famous law firm down in Little Rock that you've probably heard of. I don't know if I should mention their name, but they were the, the president's uh, wife had been employed there. Right, okay. Yep. At a certain point, many of their paper and electronic records relating to a certain presidential scandal had been erased. <laughs> and uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Webb Hubble uh, who was a friend of the, uh, of the White House. Um, and he he did it. He called it vacuuming the records, and fortunately, we were able to kind of unvacuum several that came from floppy disks on a from a Wang computer. Wow! And uh, I'm not sure how they located it. We one of our specialties was dealing with Wang data in those days, and uh, I guess that's how they heard of us, and so they they contacted us and did that part for them. So they there were a lot of documents that referred to a real estate project called Castle Grande. Hmm. I can't tell you anymore. I no, no. Yeah, I, no, and, and we don't want you to go there, but it's very intriguing that, you know, Watergate, Whitewater, and, and also WorldCom, that was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, WorldCom at the time was the largest uh, uh, bankruptcy uh, case, in, I guess, in history up to that point. And uh, uh, people were, were, I guess, suing them for information 
and for, especially for email records. And uh, they had no regulations in those days about passing on electronic evidence. Today, you have to pass along electronic evidence in the most convenient or in the most reasonable, convenient form for the people asking for the discovery of that data. In those days, if you asked for data, there were no regulations, no laws, so they would throw a bunch of tapes in a box. And this was even worse because they, these tapes, there were DLTs, about 200 of them. And they were from what they used to call tape raids. Huh. In the old days, tape, tape drives weren't fast enough to do backups very quickly. So what they'd do is they'd have two tapes running in parallel, kind of like you had two tape, two disk drives in what they called a raid array. Right, or three yeah. Disk drives or so they, they used to have tape raids that would be two wide or four wide or eight wide. Well, they had 200 tapes there that had been produced various backups on various tape rates. There were no markings on the tapes, whatever. I think they'd been deliberately removed. And they were just all jumbled together in the box. And I think they were just trying to obstruct things. So we had to sit down and figure out which tapes went with which and then recover all the exchange emails. That was a challenge, wow. but we done eventually. And uh, that gave, gave us our third W. Well, Ed, those those are some pretty big uh, projects, obviously. So, uh, you, you mentioned just earlier that you you have a significant relationship with uh, NARA, the the uh, the archives, the National Archives. Tell me some right. of the some of that connection. Give give me a sense of of the the work you've done for them or the relationship you have with them. Yeah, I, I frankly I love talking about NARA. They were such great people, and I mean. Um, it was a government agency that really seemed to care about its work and, and was working hard. So I was very happy to work with them. It was a great time. Hmm. It all started in early 1991, and uh, my wife and I were getting up. I'm getting ready for work, and we were listening to Charles Osgood on the radio. Yeah. And he was, he was saying things like, and I have a quote from his, that much information from the last 30 years is stranded on computer tape from primitive or discarded systems, unintelligible or soon to be so. That was one of the things, type of things he was saying. Uh, and he, he mentioned government institutions like the National Archives. And my wife turned to me and says, hey, don't you do that kind of stuff? Uh, call those people. Huh. So I really owe it to my wife. Wow. <laughs> Started with it, and I, there there was also an AP article that was printed on the same subject on the same day, um, and it, that may be what prompted Charles Osgood to speak about it. In any case, I saw that article, and it mentioned a Dr. Ken Thibodeau, who was the chief of electronic records at the National Archives, and so I called him up. And it turned out he was a really nice guy, obviously very smart fellow. And uh, then didn't hear anything for a year. <laughs> I thought, uh, you know, maybe we could really work with them and help them. But after a year, the request for proposal came out. They sent it to a couple of hundred companies. And um, we were lucky enough to be a finalist on it. And uh, we got interviewed in, in the fireside chat room. Remember when President Roosevelt used to do fireside chat? Yeah, okay. It turns out that the room he did it in was at the National Archives, nowhere near a fireplace. 
They had a little radio studio buried deep in the middle of the archives building down on Pennsylvania Avenue. Wow. So, uh, so that was kind of neat, just when they told us that we're sitting in the fireside chat room. And there were a bunch of really nice people there that were going to be kind of managing the project uh, from, you know, from the archives, who would essentially be our bosses if we won the contract. And... Uh, they wanted to implement a system called APS, Archival Preservation System, which would act as an ingesting mechanism. In other words, federal agencies keep their own records for many years, and finally when they don't want to be bothered storing them anymore, they send them over to the National Archives. Right, okay. So the archives would be getting lots and lots of these old computer tapes, and they, uh, and they were outsourcing a lot of the work, and they, want, and they wound up having thousands and thousands of nine-track reels sitting on a shelf, which they also wanted to migrate to newer media, and that was part of the function of this APS. So uh, APS would ingest various records from various sources and sort of catalog them in a database and convert the formats. Um, and uh, we managed to win the contract. Wow, very cool. Yeah, it was great. And we also got extended several times over the years, and uh, they tell me that sole source contracts that keep getting extended, get people get suspicious of them, but the folks at the archives were very nice to us and just said, hey, these guys do a good job and they don't charge out a whole lot. <laughs> uh, so we wound up with, uh, for about 14 years, wow. relations just continually supporting and enhancing as their needs changed over the years. We would add features to the software and, uh, that finally ended around 2004, I guess, and we got a separate contract in 2005 and six to do some further enhancements. And, uh, that was the end of our official relationship. Although we did get separate um, jobs that they, they would farm out and we had to bid on for uh, recovering data from various presidential records on tapes of different kinds. So, that's, that's, so we've had an ongoing relationship with them. That's so cool. Well, I, I think it's interesting, you know, you, you've been doing this for such a long time and you've been doing this this media conversion or data conversion, um, but you, you have a unique perspective on this. And so um, companies continue to, it seems, you know, if you look at some of the statistical evidence, we're producing more data today than ever. Um, but from your unique perspective, and I know you have a unique one on it, um, what are what could corporations and enterprises and companies maybe be doing now to save significant hassles down the road as it relates to their data? Is is there some, you know, if you had a crystal ball and you could say, you know, you'd save yourself a whole lot of headache if you just did this now, what what would you encourage companies to do? Uh, yeah, um, the one, one thing I, I would suggest that, that one try to standardize somewhat and make sure that when you set up that great new system um, that you you storing your data on tape media that's not terribly unusual or 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 some other media hmm. whatever that's being stored in the cloud or whatever and always make sure because I've seen people they'll migrate to a system it was the best system in the world it had all of these wonderful features maybe they had special uh, relations <laughs> with the vendor somehow yeah whatever whatever the motivation was but then they're stuck in a corner it's it's 
difficult to migrate the data from it hmm. because it's in proprietary formats. I know the Wang systems were kind of like that. We migrated a lot of people onto Wang, and when they needed to go off, um, we also did a lot of that too. But yeah. but Wang had proprietary formats for its all of its various files and oh, structures, okay. and and backup tapes were in proprietary format and so forth. So it's a good thing to standardize. Make sure that if you're backing up on tape, that you're doing it in a fairly standard format. Right. You know that uh, uh, that you know ArcServe and you know um, that backup and, and things like that, and, and nothing that's going to be too unusual hmm. and physically not too unusual. Right. Fortunately, today people that are backing up massive amounts of data on LTO, LTO has got very good shelf life and very good capacity. Um, but of course, the problem with high capacity tapes is if you if you damage the tape, you've lost a lot more data than in the old days when right, you damaged right. in a track reel. Yeah. Um, but it's it's lack of attention. You got to make sure you migrate the media. You know, five five years down the road. No later than ten years down, you're going to make sure that those tapes that are sitting on the shelf have are, have still been tested to verify that they're still readable. Hmm. Make sure you migrate them to new media uh, periodically. Just um, just to it, make sure you can still access them down the road if necessary. Yeah, yeah, just to be sure. You know, at least do at least do a sampling. I I know people that have got, and I have friends in the records management industry who. You know, and they tell us they've got customers with thousands of tapes stored away, and some of them are quite old, and they don't even have the equipment to read those tapes anymore. Yeah. So how they how do they they should at least sample those tapes and make sure that there's a good likelihood that they're still physically readable. So I know you're uh, you're incredibly you know you're incredibly busy, and you've been at this a long time. But are, are there are there entities that would do that? Is there a lot of companies, or are you a pretty unique uh, species in the world? No, there are companies that that do it. Okay. Um, I I I think uh, when we first started, I think there were only four national companies that did uh, media conversion on a national basis during the early 1980s. But there are there are lots more floating around. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's you know if you have a relationship with someone and you know you can trust them, you know that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, well. Uh, but it's it's paying attention. The, the problem is people don't have, the, they may not have the financial resources or the time to look back and make sure they've dealt with that older information that's sitting on the shelf. Right. Uh, my favorite story is the Alexandria Library. You know, I, I read a book about it. I love history. And I read a book about it. And they, you know, people always said, oh, it was those Roman soldiers that destroyed the library. No, it was crazy Muslims or fanatical Christians that destroyed the Alexandria Library. According to this book, no. Hmm. It was really just lack of attention. That library, it just eventually dwindled away because the people that were supporting it uh, faded away for some reason. So it was lack of attention that killed the Alexandria Library, and that vapor trail of old data will be lost someday. And that's the thing. Paper records can last hundreds of years. Uh, computer tapes, you know, we're lucky if they'll last 30, 40 years. 50 right. Years maybe. 
And yet that's where what's interesting now is that's where all of the data is being produced and where it's being stored and kept. And it, yeah. I mean, it might even raise an interesting philosophical question, it, uh, you know, based on that that point you just made, that lack of attention. It's very easy because we think it's in data format to just let it sit somewhere and and forget giving it attention uh, and in doing so, potentially losing the value of the data that we've created. I mean, it, it you know, we, we can lose all of that very easily. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the metadata about the data that's equally important. If you have mainframe file and you've lost all of the documentation that describe the structure of that data, hmm. it's going to be extra hard to make that useful again. Yeah. So it's maintaining not only the data itself, but the documentation, the, the quote metadata about the data. Right. Well, there's a, there's this show, as you know, is for the the greater records and information management service part of the industry, not necessarily the end users, but the the companies that serve. And many of them are in the data protection field, where they're you know they have media vaults. Um, how, how does the information that you and I have talked about today? How does it how is it meaningful to them in terms of what should they be know, knowledgeable of and aware of? I think you mentioned earlier to to encourage them to tell their clients that if this tape's been around for twenty years, at least go get one of them tested. Make make sure you can actually access that. Is there any other points you would make to service providers who who come across old data in old media tapes and are often asked to store it or archive it for them. Um, a- any other points you would make to the, to this community? Well, I'd like it, yeah. Fortunately, I've, I've, I've had friends in the industry and been to some PRISM meetings and to a bare metal conference one time and um, a great bunch of people. And they're, they know a lot more now than, than I think that industry did as a, as a whole 30 years ago. So they may not need a whole lot of advice from me, but... What I would advise them is um, things like if, if you know somebody's got a whole bunch of tapes on the shelf, um, you, like you say, you want to at least test some of them or perhaps migrate them to another piece of media. The thousands of tape reels will fit on a DVD. You know, <laughs> or even 3480, 3490 tape cartridges, you right. can fit hundreds of those on a thumb drive these days. Yeah. Uh, or some of the bigger thumb drives. So... And now some people are afraid to open that discussion because, hey, um, maybe I'm getting so much per tape to store it or whatever, I may lose that revenue. But in, in my experience, I've seen people that have migrated data to another media, which is much less expensive, and they're very grateful, and they're going to continue to be good customers to these people. And in a lot of cases, they'll say, you know what, just in case, let's keep the old tapes there too. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So, so even if you're migrating to another media, you might not even lose that initial uh, the the uh, the income from storage of that media. And on the other hand, you'll also gain a lot of confidence, I think, from the client if they know that you are the guy who's going to be objective and looking out for their best best needs. Right. Especially if you uh, you have a competitor who's not doing that. Right. And right. Uh, you know. Uh, so I don't know. I guess that's 
No, that's, but that, but that's a great point. So I guess maybe the final question, because we've blown through our, our 30 plus minutes now. Um, but the, the last question is, is that something if they had a, you know, if, if somebody in our, our industry had a question about it or were unsure what to do with something, is that something they could communicate with you about? I certainly would be happy to talk to, uh, you know, like I always tell uh, my, my prospective clients, we're always happy to do a free look-see. Okay. This, the funny thing about media conversion is you never can tell till you get the actual tape in your hands. Got I've it. had so many people send me a computer tape and say, this is what I think it is. Change it from this to that. turns out to be completely different <laughs> than what they thought was on the tape. Right. Um, Very interesting. And, and for, for our sake, too, we want to, before we quote a price, we want to be sure we can do the darn thing and we're not blowing smoke at right. people. Right. So it's always best to do a free analysis. We, we usually do a free look at whatever piece of media, whether it's optical disc or tape or floppy disk or whatever it might be. And possibly, if, if we can, if we have the tools available to even convert a little bit of it and email that back to the client. Oh, wow. Just to show them, give them proof that it can be done. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've always operated that way. And, uh, so if anybody's got a question about something... Uh, if, you, if you can send us a sample, we're happy to have a look at it, spend some time analyzing it, and um, be able to give you a good quote after that. Well, that's fabulous. Well, Chris, it's been a real pleasure to hear your story, to hear what you do. Um, you know, like so many of us are aware that there's media sitting there and there's data on that stuff, but um, I don't know anyone else who does the kind of work you do. And so it was really cool to talk to you about what you do and, and how you do it and some of the things you've discovered and some of the things you've done along the way. Thanks so much for spending the time with us and uh, continued success in this crazy world of data. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. It was a real pleasure talking. Now, that was very interesting. I am more convinced than ever that our great big rim world has a whole lot of amazing opportunities in it. Here's someone who specializes in just converting data from older media and it... It, for all for all I can understand from the conversation I've had with him, is incredibly busy just trying to keep up with it all. Very cool stuff. So thanks to Chris Muller for joining us on the show today. If you want to get the link to his site just to see what he's doing, you can visit the show page today at rimproreport.com slash show-144. That's rimproreport.com slash show-144. And thanks to you for joining us this week as well. I appreciate you coming every week. I'm also incredibly thankful to O'Neill Software who sponsor the show. O'Neill is committed to creating great software for your RIM service business. But more than that, they keep pushing the envelope in the development of their products, both for what is required today, but even more importantly, what will be happening in the industry tomorrow. Well, it might seem like it's not that important. We know that in two years, three years, five years from now, you'll be glad they kept moving forward. And you can learn more about them and their software at O'NeillSoft. Dot com. Uh, that's it for today. We'll be back next week with another great interview for you. Have yourself a great week. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.